You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. So whether the market is doing gangbusters or looking more like a dumpster fire, a good, well-rounded stock portfolio is necessary for any investor. Robinhood is a platform that aims to democratize finance for everybody. Robinhood believes everyone should have access to financial markets, so what they did was they built their system from the ground up to make investing friendly, approachable, and understandable for newcomers and experts alike. What I love about Robinhood is that you don't need an account minimum to start. There are zero fees for trading, and you can even purchase cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Join today by tapping the link in the show notes to get a free stock. It's just like that. I mean, it's just free, just for signing up. And this free stock can be anything from Sirius XM to Apple or any of the other thousands of other publicly traded companies just like that. You've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. So go get your free stock today by checking out that Robinhood link in the show notes today. Real fast, let me go ahead and tell you about Inbox Dollars. Are you looking for a side hustle so easy you could do it while sitting on the toilet or in between commercials watching your favorite show? Unless you're like on demand and commercials are like an ancient thing to you. Hear me out. Inbox Dollars has your back. For 20 years, Inbox Dollars has paid over $59 million in cash rewards to its members for doing everyday online activities such as reading emails, taking online surveys, playing games, and watching videos and TV. They also have ongoing promos and contests for members to win money online. And they share the top ways for people to get beauty samples, free printable coupons, and other free online stuff. With so many easy ways to earn extra cash online and having fun in the process, it's no wonder Forbes, Mashable, Bustle, and so many other trusted outlets name Inbox Dollars the easiest and fastest way to earn money online. If you're looking for a way to influence future products and services while getting paid at the same time, then Inbox Dollars is for you. Click the special link in the show notes of this episode today and get $5 just for signing up. Get this $5 signing bonus just for creating an account. That's Inbox Dollars. The link is in the show notes of today's episode. Get it, get your $5, and get started. Folks, we have a great show for you today. We have John Mates, the CEO of Parlor. We're going to be talking about what it's like to go ahead and create a competitive social media platform, why censorship online is the way it is. $10 says it's not for the reasons you think, and so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Yeah, you know, the times that we're living in right now really show us one thing. It's that survival of the fittest, engage, overcome, and adapt, social Darwinism. They sound so negative. In some cases, they are. In some cases, we're better. But throughout all adverse times in history, what we've seen is this. When people demand something to happen, what's the best way to go ahead and get it done? Let free people communicate. Let free people voluntarily cooperate with each other to accomplish things. Um, The person I have on today is no stranger to that. He's an entrepreneur. He's somebody that saw a need coming from a large segment of the population that feels stigmatized and silenced online. So what he did was he went ahead and took those bold steps to make something that 
I'm using basically on a daily basis now. And as someone who's a social media professional, let me tell you, I've seen a lot of platforms come and go, but this one is the one that I truly believe that if you're going to set an account on and actually engage with, and not just as a protest platform, but as the other app right beside your Facebook or your Instagram, whatever you're into, it's Parler. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you for taking time to speak with me. Hey, thanks, Ramzo. So um, you've been asked it a million times before. So folks, for all the information about Parler, for all the of John's interviews where he's really gone in depth about that, I, I'm going to go ahead and link to all of that in the show notes. I really just want to you know, advance this to really understand the mindset of the world we're in. John, when you were in high school, if you could go back in time and tell yourself then that you're going to be the CEO of a competitor to a social media platform such as Facebook or Twitter, what would the younger you say? Well, I probably wouldn't believe me because I never liked social media. So, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't believe you or me if I was telling myself that. I mean, when I was in high school, I was a robotics nerd. I mean, I was on the robotics team. I uh, was picked on in school, total nerd. So, uh, and I didn't like social media. That's where all the cool kids hung out anyway. So I probably wouldn't believe you or me, whoever was telling myself this. What, what's it been like the past couple of years? Because Parler is now two years old now. You've had you know, ups and downs, good times and bad times. But it seems like every day I go on there, there are just thousands of more people actually making accounts and trying to get engaged with the online community that you've established. Yeah, I mean, there's we're growing a lot every day. I mean, we're number 28 on the App Store right now for news. Uh, and we keep getting better every day. So, you know, it's great. And, uh, and I like to see how we have this really great trajectory. No one else has been able to seem to get near these numbers. I mean, if you go on the App Store and you see where we're sitting, you know, we're ahead of major media publications, you know, we're ahead of, you know, Reuters, we're ahead of Breitbart, we're ahead of all these people in the store. Uh, we're up, you know, the you know, only people ahead of us are like Twitter. <laughs> so, uh, and I've never seen them fluctuate off of number one. So I'm pretty sure they have a static spot there. You know, I'm just saying it doesn't seem fair. <laughs> it's a little bit odd. I mean, today it, it almost seems like the idea of a competitor coming into the space that you're in, it, it's almost like why. Um, I, I mean, I've met people who have tried to create other social media platforms and it's almost like, you, you know, it's weird. People don't have to use Facebook. But for a large portion of the population, they feel that they have to. The same goes for like LinkedIn or Twitter. It's almost yeah. like these platforms that are only really maybe less than a decade and a half old, it, they're almost institutionalized as these permanent platforms that will never go away. We just have to learn to get better at them. But well, I, if we know anything about history, it's that, you know, in free markets, that's never the case. Yes. I mean, okay. So if you, if you go back and, and, and study kind of, um, microeconomics, not macro, not the, not the Keynesian school, but the other one, uh, the one that's actually, uh, you know, in my opinion actually works, uh, you'll, you'll see the competition is key. And, and as times change and as people's needs change, businesses need to adapt. You know, the benefit of being a small company is we can adapt quickly. We can change really fast. You know, these big companies can't do that. They've got stockholders, they've got, you know, a way of business that's work. They've got people they have to justify things to. 
So in an economic stance, competition in this space is really good. You know, basically, let's kick out the old and, and start something new. Um, now, when we started, we originally had a business plan that was entirely different than where it is today. And tomorrow, it will be slightly different than it is today as well, because we keep learning and adapting. It's the one benefit about being a small contender that we can move quick. Um, one thing that is, when we started to take on Twitter, we, we thought that we would be at a place that would be a replacement for Twitter. What we realized is that we're not. I mean, that's, you know, we realized that quickly. We're not going to be a place, and nor do I want to, be a place where people come on and they just say, here, world, I'm going to tell you this, right? And then I provide no feedback, and then a bunch of bots jump on, and then the discourse gets really unintelligent. So that's not really Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm not I'm not interested in that, right? Where we're interested in having conversation with real people and and doing real things. Uh, when I get on Parlor, I actually engage with people. I'm very active on Parlor, and a lot of other people who have prominent accounts are. You know, we were doing a study uh, at one point on Parlor where we would give people the equivalent of a blue check mark. Blue check mark is like I guess the uh, it's Twitter's version of saying you're a very important individual. You're better it's than like all God those had at this point. Yes, yes. Don't you dare um, defy or dissent <laughs> against the blue check mark people. Yes, they're very important on Twitter. So, so on Parlor we have uh, a gold check mark. We also have a red or not check. It's a badge. Then we have a red badge. The red badge anybody can get a red badge by applying, and the gold badge is reserved for those who. I guess are uh, we we hand it out to people who could be inter impersonated or have a blue check on Twitter or have a Wikipedia page. The whole purpose is we don't want if they have the status on these other sites, they should still have the status here understood. But we did a study where we gave it to a few people to see uh, who weren't exactly important, but we wanted to see if people would treat them differently on the platform if they saw the gold badge or not the gold badge. And it was just a study; it was a short term thing. Nobody cared about the badge. That was the awesome part about Parler. Nobody cared. So yeah, no, no one really cared about the difference. We don't have a social hierarchy. And so when, when you had mentioned people are going to take on these platforms, it happens in a different way. You don't, in, in competition, you don't build the same thing, but with slightly different terms of service. You don't build the same thing, but differently uh, in, in a minute detail. You build it differently in terms of the entire interaction is different. The experience is different. This is a platform for people, not a platform for influencers. And so the difference is, is people can have conversations with one another. They can get to the problem. They can get into the debate, the topic. Um, and, and we don't, people don't seem to care a whole lot about the influencers on Parler. Only yeah. those who engage. Yeah. I mean, that was something that you did that a few other platforms tried doing um, years back, like around 2015, 2016. But I mean, this is another example of people see a problem in the current outlets and platforms that they have. The biggest problem post 2016, 2017 was that on Twitter, you cannot apply for a blue check mark anymore. And the thing is, it, it didn't, it used to be that it didn't matter how many followers you had. It was just proof that you are who you say you are, because I don't need to tell anybody this. If you've been alive for more than two seconds, you know, that identity theft is a thing, you know, that fraud is a thing. So being able to just say that I am who I say I am, is an incredibly important thing. So now Twitter only gives out those blue check marks when they feel you're worthy of it. I know a handful of people who just woke up one day and you know their Twitter had a blue check mark and they have no clue how. Um, same goes for Facebook. They say that it's a fair and balanced system in which you can apply, but 
you know, I've got several thousand people on my fan page on Facebook. Um, I've sent them my driver's license. I've given them every form of identification ever, but they don't do it. They only reserve it for certain organizations or people that they deem are worthy of it. So then you had organizations like Gab, like Minds, like uh, politicalspeech.us, where they saw that and it, it became, if you can just go ahead and verify who you say you are, we'll give it to you. Even Vero did that. Vero, I was impressed with them. Uh, they got it to me in less than a day. Parler, I got it within a couple of hours. But this is one of those examples of people saw the problem that verification was treated as more of a privilege and less of a right. And, you know, that's the thing that I love about Parler specifically. There are no bots. I can't tell you how many people on the Washington Times account, and this is, you know, I'll say this publicly, or the or my personal uh, Hey Remso account on Instagram are actually real. Because years back, people were trying to buy influencer status by just inflating their follower count with just fake accounts on parlor. I'm pretty dang sure. I know that the people with the red badge are actual human beings. And that's something I don't think any other platform out there right now can actually say. Yeah, that's true. And you know, one of the things that you can tell with parlor is, uh, people are actually able to fundraise effectively on parlor and people also get to track links, referral links to their websites on parlor. Uh, and when they look at the actual data, they see that, you know, even the social media might be slightly smaller or very, you know, compared to Twitter, we're much smaller, you know, 1 million users versus whatever, 100 million. Uh, but when when people actually track the links and they look at the money they're raising, they're actually seeing very good numbers. And and the reason is because these are real people. You know, when Twitter came out and said, you know, about 20% of our network is bots, I, I think that was an understatement. I think that it's much more than 20%. I think 20% was all they felt comfortable announcing. Um, you know, and you, and, you, and you can see that because there's a lot of just troll accounts and then a lot of people who are not saying very, you know, helpful things, but you come on parlor, it's a different experience. I'm not trying to compare myself to Twitter. If you want to go out and um, make an announcement to the world, Twitter is probably the best place for you. You know, that's, you're going to have the biggest reach, the most audience. Um, but if you're going out to actually talk and solve problems, parlor is a much better place. So it's for different purpose. Yeah. And the one thing that I have seen people bring up to you in previous interviews is that often they preface the conversation with you're the, you know, the more conservative alternative to Twitter or you're the other Twitter. When we've spoken, I mean, the thing that really showed me that you had the intention of building this as a long-term sustainable platform wasn't that you were going to be the right-wing Twitter or the anti-Twitter you were going to be the first parlor. And that sounds real nice, but the words behind that actually mean so much more because you weren't asking people to delete their apps on other platforms. Because, I mean, you tell people to do that like some other platforms did. I won't name names. You're going to get an adverse reaction because that's where all their friends are. That's where content mm -hmm. they like is. They're not going to yeah. do that because they, have, they feel they have to pick between one or the other. And most of the time, you might lose. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. And the other thing too is why would I ask somebody to, if somebody said something really great and they wanted the whole world to see it, I know that parlor is not the place to get the most followers, but it's the place to get the best conversation. So if I know that they want to get some attention to their post, uh, you know, they've still got Twitter, they still have Facebook, they still have these other sites. They should share their parlor content there too. Maybe their friends will join in and add to the conversation. 
I mean, I'm, I don't think people should limit their reach, but they should, you know, if they don't feel comfortable with what Facebook and Twitter and all these sites are doing with their data, selling their data, uh, collecting way too much, um, and then being a little too careless with it. Um, you know, Facebook's been notorious for that with a few of the scandals they've had. If people don't feel comfortable with that, then, then they should delete it. That should be a decision they make with themselves and their followers and their community. It's not something I'm interested in making on their behalf. And, and to your point, you said that, you know, there's a lot of sites that wanted to be the conservative Twitter or the conservative Facebook or the conservative whatever. We're not interested in being the conservative version of anything. I'm just interested in providing a platform where people's data is there. That, that's theirs. It's, it's like their property. And I want to respect that. Um, it's, it's a place where people can actually be free to speak and debate. Um, and it's in our best interest to make sure that we're free speech because, you know, that helps with the conversation creating great conversation. And so, you know, when, when, when people have said, Oh, you're just the conservative Twitter, the MAGA, the MAGA social media, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of my posts recently, but I'm not exactly falling into that category of uh, thought here. Oh, people get mad at you. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I debate with them. I had had some people threatening me, telling me they're going to quit the platform because of things they say they don't like it. You know, when I, when I Photoshopped a picture of, uh, of James O'Keefe on uh, Jack Dorsey's dog and and then tagged him in it, he didn't like that. And his followers didn't like that. Uh, to, to give a little background as to why I did that, um, you know, since James and I are fine, by the way, we still email back and forth. We talk, we're fine. You know, I, I met him a handful of times. We're very friendly. Um, it, it was a lot of fun to put that, that picture out there. Got a lot of attention. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it was but, funny to uh, see some of the gold badge people come out of the woodwork for the first time in months. Well, it, it's funny because as soon as I say that, people go, oh, well, you know, it's just parlor. Like, you know, I, I'm going to stay on Twitter and fight the good fight. I was like, really? Because I post a picture of you. You have no parlor account, right? You have no parlor account. I'm not going to text you. I'm not going to send anything. I, I could call James and say, hey, I posted this nasty picture of you. I didn't do that. I just posted on Parlor, and I wanted to see how long it would take him to come onto Parlor to argue against me, and it took less than a day. It took him two <laughs> hours to notice. <laughs> it was pretty great. Uh, and I did the same thing with Carpe Dongtum. Uh, when, uh, when he was saying how he's going to stay on Twitter and, and not fight for free speech, and I was like, are you kidding me? Are you on drugs? Like, if you care about free speech, you wouldn't be there. Obviously, you care about other things. I just want you to be intellectually honest with your followers. If you don't care about free speech, just tell them, hey, look, it. I'm on here because I like to have the most attention, and I want free retweets from the president. If that's what you want to say, then say it. Don't lie to people and say you care about free speech and you're fighting for it. Don't be like, don't virtue signal or be altruistic about it. Just say what it is. We're all comfortable with it. And, you know, of course, he jumped on Parler, and he's been active ever since. Actually, I think... Um, I think we all have a good relationship with everybody now, but a lot of people don't like my opinions. <laughs> so, oh, well, <laughs> that's the whole point of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not going to virtue signal. I'm not going to say something I don't believe. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one thing that it is interesting is that when people have these conversations about, you know, social, whether it's social media platforms or your favorite place to go grab dinner or something, it's like, nobody's ever, Oh, I only I I I uh I ate at McDonald's once, therefore I can only eat at McDonald's. It's like no, you go to other places. It's like you know I like Coke, but I still 
I still drink Pepsi. I still drink other stuff. It seems that in our own lives, our actions show we like variety. We like having options. We like being able to come in and out of things. But then when you get into these discussions, they turn more into debates. And it's like, well, I have to stay on Twitter. Well, I have to stay on Facebook. I've got an entire folder with like six other platforms that I'm active on pretty regularly. And despite the fact that I like some more than others, I hate Facebook. I say that publicly. It really irks a lot of people that I work with. You know, I'm still on Facebook because that's where my mom is. And my mom's not going to leave Facebook because she doesn't want to leave Facebook. So mm-hmm. that's fine. But, I'll hey, stay on Facebook, Facebook. has done, and I'll, I, and I'll go out of my way to compliment them here. They've done a really good job at making an app that appeals to a certain section of the community that's really hard to get active on social media. You the know, when you said your mom, I'm I, the boomers. Yes, I'm making a, uh, <laughs> I was trying to be I say it endearingly. I say it endearingly. But I mean, no, they did a really good job. I mean, our support tickets are filled with people who don't understand how to use, uh, you know, the ticket, uh, the, the system once in a while when they are, you know, older. Um, and then you go, no, if you want to, you know, comment, you hit the button that looks like a speech bubble. They're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, so we get like people, you know, saying stuff like that. So Facebook's done a really good job at building a platform that allows uh, the technically unsavvy to work. Uh, online and and you know like you said you're going to stay there to 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 talk to your mom you know or whoever else um i gave that up a long time ago because i realized that i didn't really care about talking to my aunts and uncles and sharing pictures of my personal life with them and mark zuckerberg so i decided a long time ago (laughs) that i would just get rid of it Um, i really don't like that creep looking at my pictures so uh and by the way for anybody who doesn't know how databases and uh you know data sharing and everything works if you give content to a platform, unless they explicitly tell you it's got some kind of special encryption or we don't share your data or any of this stuff, unless they go out of your way to tell that to you, any engineer at any point in time, no matter how private you set your settings on your you know, page, any engineer or anybody that works for that company can probably just pull up the picture in the database. So just throwing it, that out there. It, it's horrifying. And I've had, I've had some scares with Facebook. I started getting on a, when, when I was an independent journalist, I I was getting a lot of the I don't know how to put it like my reach was disappearing, um, my engagement was just disappearing. This is when people started realizing that hey, like a majority of my fans, even though I post daily, they're not seeing my content at all because of the algorithm changes. This was really like around 2017. This is when YouTube was kicking people off like it was going ass style, and it, it really concerned me because I'm not. You know, I'm not a big media commentator. I was never on Fox, but I started seeing it affect me of my couple thousand fans on my public on my fan page on Facebook. And I started really thinking, wow, if I'm starting to see the backlash from this, I wonder what other people are seeing. And I've spoken to people with. Yeah. And some of that could be politically motivated and some of it couldn't could could not be. I, I don't I think about probably 60% of people who are complaining about big tech censorship are just exaggerated, but the other 40% are seeing it. And so what I mean is, is for example, you said that you saw a lot of your following disappear. I think some of that was probably due to algorithm changes that they have. 
Yeah, I, I, I want to preface this because, like, I, I don't think that Facebook, I don't think they have someone dedicated to me looking at my stuff, trying to downgrade <laughs> me. The worst I, thing, I, yeah, the worst I doubt thing, it. I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous to think that. They're not, like, that's that's super conspiratorial for anyone really to say. But, I mean, the worst thing that I think they did was when they, um, back in 2016, when they were ultimately choosing which news was trending, when they took out human moderators and they said it was going to be completely fair and completely objective, we're just going to have computers and algorithms figure it out. I think that was the worst thing ever because now it's not a person or a group of people determining what people are most likely to read and engage with and share. Now it's computers determining that. And that's almost Mm -hmm. much more nefarious. Well, I had uh, written a thing about algorithmic bias, uh, just claiming that there's a computer program that can look at your, the substance of your content and determine whether it should or shouldn't exist or that it's violent or bad or evil or any of these things. It's just not possible. We started early on contemplating and the, the conversation lasted about five minutes before all of our engineers were like, this is the dumbest thing we've ever heard. Uh, we were trying to figure out how to make some kind of like fact checker, not like fact checker, but like a media bias checker based off of the content. It's like that's the bias and, uh, and uh, human language is very complex. So determining bias could live in, uh, it could live in the absence of information. That is what could make a bias, not what they're throwing out there. So just because they say Trump and then, uh, you know, there's a couple negative words also doesn't mean that those negative words might correspond with him. And, and maybe it actually is a positive article about him. They just left out some more egregious things about Trump. So, you know, these kind of machine learning algorithms, they're basically two part. One is determining bias is too difficult, uh, in my opinion. Uh, the human language is too complex. Uh, and all of the facts that are going around that make up an article um, you can't look at the substance of just the content of an article and then make a determination. Um, you could do it if you were to look at, let's say the historical track record of the company and make tally marks and then somehow train a data set based on historical. Anyway, I want to go into details there. Uh, the other part is, is there is human bias in algorithms. So if you were to try to make an algorithm that determines what you can and cannot say, like the face, what was it? Uh, one of those social media platforms, just made a algorithm that looks at the content of a post you're about to make and then warns you if you should or should not make that post. Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Yes. Yeah. So that algorithm is going to be biased because some engineer had to pull the data sets to build up that algorithm that makes the determination of whether the content's good or not. So you can't say because it's a computer algorithm that it's fair. Somebody had to pick and choose the data that made up the data set that then makes the determination. I'm assuming they have some kind of ML. So if yeah. that's the case, it's a person whose bias went into building the algorithm that then makes the determination on behalf of the company uh, on whether or not that's acceptable. And you know that no leader, no matter if it's a conservative, a liberal, or whatever it might be running that company, um, most of the work comes down to whoever built the data set. And the data set's going to be a group of people who are ideologically aligned one way or another. It doesn't, you know unless they're very specific about who they picked, you're putting a lot of faith in an engineer to build an algorithm that's supposed to be unbiased that might not be. And that's why we don't use algorithms for curating people's feeds outside of you know, chronological. Because of course you have to use an algorithm, but it's chronological. And the reason I'm being pedantic about all of this is because someone's gonna come onto my parlor and tell me that I'm a moron 
because I don't understand all of them. <laughs> I made some blatant generalized statement. No, it, it, it's yeah. happened to me before. I, I, I totally Silicon understand. Valley, some guy in Silicon Valley heard my heard one of my you know talks on Fox News or something. And they came on there and they started blasting me. You know nothing about algorithms. Algorithms are racist. I'm like, what are you talking what? about? What are you talking about? <laughs> algorithms are racist? Yeah, he made some point about how algorithms are racist and you can't use algorithms. And he, it was a ridiculous argument. It was based in some concept that like, it was about resumes and determining whether a candidate's qualified on their resume or not. And uh, he was trying to argue that if you use an algorithm on a resume and the person's name's Muhammad, they're less likely to get a job. And that therefore all algorithms are racist. The guy was insane. But wow. I have to be very careful about how I say things now because otherwise I get some pedantic Nazi that comes on there and yells at me. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's been quite strange. So I, I got into social media because I was covering a lot as a as a columnist for a couple different websites and magazines. And now actually having been in the industry for over a year and a half now, you know, the things that used to bother me don't bother me. Now there's a whole new list of things that bother me. And you, you mentioned at the beginning that you were really into robotics growing up. I mean, I think it was Isaac Asimov who said, um, you know, if we do create artificial intelligence and, you know, sentient robots, all they will essentially be are the truer reflections of ourselves. And we, we that's, all the time. That's a, that's a wise statement. I don't, I, I so far, I, right off the cuff, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. The, the thing that bugs me about the fact checkers, and I've seen this, you know, both at the Washington Times and I've also seen this at other places, even some left wing sources. I have I have noticed that this happens to Vox quite often. I do know that uh, and I could be wrong. Someone's going to yell at me later. Um, you know, there, there are actual people that will go through popular and trending news because it's it's not like it's not like there's a group of people that reads every news story that's updated. That would be impossible. What they do is they look at which articles linked on Facebook are getting the most activity and they will usually spark somebody to go and review it. And if they see something that's blatantly controversial, they will go ahead and fact check it. The, the thing that you mentioned about there being inherent biases is absolutely true. There have been pieces that have been marked uh, false or misleading or not entirely true, where the only fact checker is some random obscure WordPress blog that somebody didn't even want to buy the domain for that is expressing a <laughs> counter opinion. It's not that they're showing counter facts. It's not that they're disproving something with evidence or data. It's that this mm -hmm. person doesn't agree. Therefore, your whole claim is false. Yeah. Well, I mean, fact checkers inherently have a big problem. They're all biased. And I, I know that you're with the Washington Times and I, and I love, you know, you guys have a great site, but your fact checkers are going to be biased too. Everyone yeah. is. A fact checker in and of itself is justification of whatever we want to justify, unless it's like flamboyantly false. Mm -hmm. Like if it's flamboyantly false, there's nothing a fact checker can really do about it. Um, they would look stupid. Um, do you believe the most, it's the role of a social media platform to have that? No, no, not at all. That's the whole, that's the whole point of conversation is for people to determine what's true or false. The pandemic video is a great one. That was called a conspiracy theory and a whole handful of other, by the way, when you read the articles, you can tell how biased they are going into the algorithms or going into the, sorry, the words, because they use things like, uh, you know, uh, intellectually dishonest or 
conspiracy theory or, uh, you know, they, they just throw out all of these vulgar terms to try to disprove it without ever actually addressing the content. And if you noticed, almost all of these fact checkers like to do that. Um, if it's an argument to be made about, um, if a fact checker wants to disprove something, they will pick and choose between percentages or hard numbers, uh, or a list of other things to try to make their point. No matter what the point is that they want to make, they can prove something true or false just by handpicking certain details. And so depending on what side of the political spectrum you are on, you will likely get a different result from a fact checker. I've got a story for you real fast about that. Okay. When when that pandemic video was, I, I saw it on Facebook first and I saw a lot of people on parlor sharing it. And then Twitter was one of the first platforms to actually start taking down any links or hashtags related to that video. I have not seen that documentary and I have really no interest in watching it, but I reached out to a friend at a, at a, you know, at a right leaning uh, website who's pretty affluent in the, conservative journalism community. And I also reached out to a friend of mine who's a Bernie bro who's running for state house, who's running for state assembly in California. And I asked them both the same question separately. I asked them because they both made public statements about the video as if they had watched it. I just asked them, Hey, did you actually watch it? Both of them said no. <laughs> That's the most common thing ever. I was in a debate with somebody the other day about Ayn Rand and uh, Atlas Shrugged. And they're like, this is just a, a piece of uh, trash that people use to, to tell stories <laughs> to little white boys to make them think uh, better of themselves <laughs> than black people. I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you read the book? No. Of course he hasn't read the book. He read some article somewhere and then just regurgitating it. And then followed up when, you know, this is the same kind of person that when you, when you present something to them, like you said, your friends never read it or never watched it. This guy never read it. Uh, then they send you like 10 articles justifying their positions because the articles were written by experts, quote unquote, and therefore they don't need to read the book because the experts are now telling them what to think. It's ridiculous. I don't know how people can be so silly in society right now. I mean, yeah. that's why we want debate. And for the pandemic, I watched the video. At first, I didn't. At first, I just thought, I don't care. It's just another one of those hunky things people take down. Um, so we'll, we'll put it up on parlor because the community should be able to see everything that's taken down everywhere else. So we put it up, um, because we knew it would get banned. Someone mentioned what it was about and I knew immediately it was going to get banned because it's really predictable now. Um, <clears throat> that being said afterwards, I did watch it because I read a review about how horrible it was. And I was like, Oh my God, this must be horrible. Let me look at it. And I was like, actually this, this doesn't sound unreasonable. The claim she making is not unreasonable. Nothing about her video was unreasonable. Um, is she right? Is she wrong? I have no idea. I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> but, but her claims weren't unreasonable. And the fact that they were taking it down actually was kind of concerning to me. Uh, if they didn't like what she had to say, they could have rebutted it. They could have came back and said, hey, you know, look at uh, this is inaccurate uh, and this is why. Um, instead of making a factual argument as a rebuttal, they just went ahead and censored it. Now that's more scary to me because now I'm sitting here going, does this mean that they were so scared of it because they couldn't reboot it? You know, they couldn't say anything about it and say, Hey, it's wrong. So they had to just ban it because they didn't like it. So that's the kind of emotion that these bannings stir up. And then they create this religious, like, you know, kind of attachment to, to, to some things that aren't true and other things that might be because people go, I will, I will stand by this content because it was banned, not because of what it's read. It, it, it creates martyrs as a result. Yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. Yes. Yeah, like one of the criticisms that 
people have told me about parlors. They don't like the fact that certain people are on there. And I always get a little bit, you know, snarky with them in a sense, because I'm like, well, there are people I don't like. It doesn't mean I don't want them to be alive or I don't want them to exist. They're going to exist. So like, why, why is this, why is there such a double standard for where people are socially acceptable and where they're not? If you don't want to engage with somebody or even come face to face with somebody or be exposed to somebody, you, you have a choice. You could literally do anything else. And the, mm. the biggest criticism is Alex Jones. Alex Jones was basically kicked off every platform out there in 2017 and now him and several of his other uh folks are on parlor i don't agree with alex jones on a lot of things i just don't follow alex jones but i believe that alex jones has a right to speak and that people have the right to listen to him so i will defend that right until my dying breath I don't understand where this double standard comes from. And I think, you know, the only logical conclusion is much like that Isaac Asimov quote. I I'm less mad at the P I I don't hate Mark Zuckerberg. I don't hate Jack Dorsey. I don't hate anyone that works there. I have no animosity towards any of those people at their platforms. I really am starting to think that social media as a concept, as a whole is less of a projection of the people who created it and, curate it and keep it going it's more of the consumers that are a part of it i i 100 agree um I, I i absolutely think that what zuckerberg and what dorsey and all these people are doing the way they're censoring and the way they're doing all this i think it's really wrong it's it's wrong and it's going to have long-term unintended consequences that are going to hurt our country they're going to hurt many people it's really harmful what they're doing but i don't blame them for it this is the activity that all the users want them to do when somebody, when Donald Trump posts something or when someone posts something who's a conservative, they get a flash mob of technically savvy young people who are very liberal, who get very angry and very loud, and they make a, a big fuss over it. And so now Twitter and Facebook are sitting here going, well, geez, I got an angry mob outside of my target demographic. The, the customer, I, my ideal customer is angry and they're mine in their mind, right? That's not my, that's not my point of view. But in their mind, their ideal customer is a, is a young, you know, uh, individual, most likely liberal. And so when they're throwing tantrums, they go, well, I don't want to lose these users to another platform. So I'm going to go ahead and ban the conservative because I'd rather ban and anger the conservative than ban and anger my target demographic group. Um, and as a result, this, this censorship issue grows. Um, and I think, A, it's wrong that we're teaching our kids that they can throw a tantrum and get somebody kicked off that they can take someone's right to free speech away by throwing a tantrum because they don't like it. That's a huge education problem. Uh, we shouldn't be promoting this anywhere, not in colleges where they ban people from having speeches if they're right-leaning, you know, or in, uh, in, in school where they teach people that you know, their right to, to, to the basically security from dangerous ideas is more important than someone else's right to free speech. This is an education problem. I don't blame Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey for that. I do. If I was in their shoes though, I would actually stand up and do something about it because I think it's really sad that they give into this. Um, but I don't blame them for it. It makes sense. They're publicly traded companies. They got to do what's best for their stock price. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where when, when I came to that realization, I, you know, things stopped surprising me. And I mean, it's like we are ultimately the enablers of 
our own worst tendencies. It's like why you have a lot of people on Twitter who all they do is talk crap about Twitter, but they will never leave Twitter. They are part of it. And I call, I call that the double red pill. So, uh, <laughs> people, people get red pilled when they go and they're like, you know, cause that's the big thing in the conservative community. They say, I got red pilled. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I call it the double red pill when everyone realizes that those who got red pilled and are now complaining about censorship, uh, don't actually care about censorship. The consumer would rather be on Twitter with all the benefits and they'd still like to complain about the benefits of being on there. So they like to complain about the censorship. The, the complaining about it gets them attention. So that's the double real, the double red pill. When you realize that a lot of these people don't actually care about censorship, they just like complaining. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, and, and to be fair, if you are a very prominent conservative individual who has a following of 500,000 or more, um, if you are, you know, a blue check mark conservative, um, when you get banned on Twitter, it's the best day of your life, not banned, suspended. And I, and I don't, I, and I know that sounds, you get free press everywhere. You get on Fox news, you get retweets from the president, you get shout outs from Don jr. I mean, it is the best day of your life. Your net worth just like your, your not net worth, but your, your internet star value just doubled. And you're going to get your account again later when you delete whatever it is that you said that you're not supposed to say. They get their account back and then they celebrate that they're going to get on to the next hundred thousand users, uh, followers in the next, you know, X amount of days. It's, uh, they don't care about censorship. Uh, and that was the double red pill moment for me is when I realized all of these people who claim to care about internet censorship, they don't care at all. And they won't do anything to help us about it. That's why it's a consumer thing. Us consumers have to say, we don't want to be there because we are not having our rights respected. And for those of us who want a higher level of conversation, real conversation, real debate, and we want to actually talk about real things that matter, we will go join Parler because that's what it's there for. For those of us who just like to complain about censorship to get free press, that's what Twitter's for. <laughs> you, you mentioned this. I mean, it's it's so simple, yet it's so it's so controversial when people really think about it. You brought this up at your speech at CPAC. You're like, we believe in a free market and people should be able to compete and choose where they go and where they allocate their money and their time and their resources. We could do that for parlor. And you would think that you would have gotten every attendant there signing up immediately. But it's, it's one of those things where people have to choose what, what they really believe and what they're going to do about it. I believe in parlor, but I'm not going to lie. I really love Instagram. I hate mm -hmm. Facebook, but I'm not leaving Facebook. Why? Because my mom is there and I want to be able mm -hmm. to have my mom tag me in funny memes that she likes because it's what makes her happy. And I've got to be on Twitter because when I have an announcement, that's where I got to go. But that means I can still have parlor. And then when mm -hmm. the day comes, because I do believe that we're going to see a mass exodus from social media, people are going to want to go where they know they are the most free. And Parler mm -hmm. is the only place that guarantees that because that's your whole mission. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a few, there's a few things to dig out of this. Uh, one is you'd mentioned when the time comes that people want to leave social media, I think that there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of privacy violations coming up, a uh, huge privacy violations by the federal government and also by these tech companies. Um, a few points here. One, uh, yesterday's speech with Barr, 
Um, I actually didn't get, I thought I would make a lot of people angry um, yesterday in my parlay that I created. I said that we, you know, you have to remember the demographic group of parlor, most of the people that follow me are diehard Trump supporters. Even though um, I have my own political opinions, I agree and disagree with Trump on many things. Mostly I disagree more than I agree, but I, I still respect the guy. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, that's, you know, and I, of course I don't want the country. I want to support the president and everything else, but I called for on my post for Barr to resign after his speech yesterday. I said, he needs to resign. Trump needs to fire this guy. Okay. And I said it and I still believe it and I will stand by it. And if I change my mind, I'll let everybody know, but I don't see that happening because what he did in my mind is the most egregious thing anybody could have done. He was trying to justify removing all encryption and companies' rights to decide about encryption from the internet, from hardware, from devices. He essentially said that because we had one terrorist that shot up a place, which, by the way, the U.S. government should have never let a terrorist join the Air Force Academy. I don't know why they did that to begin with. But, you know, let's look over that. Because this guy shot up the Air Force Academy, horrible, horrible thing that happened, uh, and three people died. It was horrible, not including the shooter. Um, As a result, uh, the FBI went to Apple to try to unlock the guy's phone. So they go into Apple and they say, hey, you guys need to unlock this guy's phone because it could contain information about more terrorists. And Apple came back and said, we can't, right? Apple can't. It's encrypted. Encrypted means only the guy who died could get in. He knew the code and his fingerprint or his face was the one tied to the phone. So if he dies, that information dies with him. He is the encryption key, right? His brain. So unless he can perform an autopsy to pull people's memories out, you can't get into that phone. And there's nothing Apple can do about it. And so what Barr said is, we had a warrant. You should have gotten me in that phone as if this warrant is somehow magically going to convince the computer to give you the encryption key, right? The warrant can't do that. The thing's encrypted. It's done. And so what Barr says is Apple has no right to make corporate boardroom decisions about what's best for their consumers, basically, at one point, and says, you know, encryption uh, should only be as secure as the government will allow it because the government should be able to have their warrants uh, basically uh, complied with. And uh, if the device cannot comply with a warrant, the device shouldn't exist. And what that means is essentially is he's advocating for backdoor access to everyone's phone from by the US government, backdoor access to everyone's text messages, backdoor access to everyone's encrypted end-to-end messages, uh, your signals, your telegrams, your WhatsApps, your, uh, they want encrypted access to literally everything because the government should always have access. And what that means is they want backdoors everywhere. If you have a backdoor, any security expert in the encryption field can tell you all backdoors are uh, vulnerabilities that will be exploited by hackers. So basically the government's saying your phone needs to be hackable, everything needs to be hackable, and you all need to be vulnerable in case I get a warrant, I want to be able to search your devices. That was a horrible thing that Barr did, and it was horrible to privacy everywhere for everybody. And so I went off on Parler about it. Um, I don't know how I started on this rant, by the way, Remzo. I just got here, and I just kept going. <laughs> so I, I don't know where <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, you, you opened up, you know, I, I, I completely get where you're coming from with that. And I mean, you opened up something else, which is, you know, a bit of a concern. It's that 
whenever government tries to get involved in something, you can almost always guarantee it's going to turn out very badly. And I mean, to kind of, you know, sidestep this, it's also why when I see people like Tucker Carlson say that we need to nationalize Google and break up Facebook, that worries the heck out of me. Because, yeah, you might say that because Trump is president, but will you want that when Joe Biden becomes president? What about Hillary Clinton? I hope not. And none of those people you just mentioned, I hope none of them become president. My <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I agree. And that, that was the whole theme of CPAC this year. And that's how I started on this. The whole theme of CPAC this year was against a case against socialism, like Rand Paul's book that just came out. Basically, we're against socialism. Yet, as far as I can tell, our country is diving very far into socialism. We're going further and further into it. When the conservatives are calling for nationalization of private companies and the attorney general of a conservative president is telling us that we can and cannot have encryption and boardrooms shouldn't be making decisions about what's best for the privacy of their customers if it interferes with the U.S. government. These are crazy things to say. You know, we're supposed to be a free market capitalistic country, uh, you know, that has roots in a constitution. And the whole concept is that companies and individuals' rights, the the rights of the individual comes before the rights of anybody else, right? You can't take, as long as you're not stepping on my rights, it's okay. I should be able to decide what's best for my customers because I know that if I do what's best for them, my company is going to be successful and everybody in the entire country will win or the world for that matter will win when I do what's best for me and I do what's best for my customers. That's how... Uh, our country is supposed to work. So when the government's coming in and telling people what they can and cannot say, they're calling for the nationalization of uh, tech companies. They're calling for uh, regulation of speech online. These are very, very scary times. And the one piece of legislation that I think Barr's speech was trying to uh, justify was this legislation, the Earn It Bill. The Earn It Bill has been something that's been coming uh, for a while. Uh, They've been trying to say that if you want 230 exemption, 230 exemption is this, uh, basically, it allows social media companies to not get sued by people uh, if somebody says something stupid. That's what 230 is. I mean, so, more so than if that, I said but, something that's some, is it that I'm saying something that is like, you know, I could be held liable or is it I'm saying something that somebody doesn't like? So let's say you as the Washington Times op-ed, you, you live stream uh, something right? You live stream a shooting of a synagogue, horrible, horrible event that happened in Germany. This is, this is during the time I was actually talking to uh, the Senate about section 230 and the earn it bill. Um, the, uh, they, the, there was a shooter in Germany that shot up a synagogue. Uh, I think it was Germany. Not sure. Uh, and it was posted, it was live streamed on Facebook. Now, and, and in any other circumstance, if the Washington times did this or any media outlet did this, they would be liable and they could be sued by the victims or anybody else that was in the video or for any reason, if the video had consequences, if people lost money or if more people's lives were in danger, all of these things could have came back and, you know, the Washington times could have been sued, but Facebook isn't Facebook can't be sued because of a, a, because of section two thirties exemption, right? It allows them to act as a publisher, uh, but also not be liable for what's being said. It's a controversial thing, um, but what the Earn It Bill is trying to say is you have to earn your Section 230 exemption. 
which in the time of social media censorship during in a democracy sounds very fascinating, right? Because people don't want censorship if it has to do with an election or if it has to do with politics. So earn it is built on the premise that people need to earn it because they're behaving like publications. But instead, the only thing that allows you to earn this exemption, according to the earn it bill, is if, if uh, the government has access to your information on that service. So they claim that if, if Facebook wants 230 exemption, the government needs to be able to dig through their databases and pull data out that they want about people. Uh, completely unrelated to free speech. And so the speech that Barr made was kind of like a way of nationalizing all of the data uh, to make it so that the government can get access to any data. And then the Section 230 bill is like a nationalize the uh, encrypted internet, nationalize private databases, nationalize any data. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. All of this is. And so in a year that CPAC uh, has the theme of socialism, we're, we're really exploring socialist policies. And I, I really hope that um, I hope that the conservatives stick to what we were talking about on that day at that event. Uh, and we stand up against socialism. We stand up for people's basic human rights and people's rights to freedom and rights to make their own decision for their company. And, 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 and I think that's, that's what our founding fathers would have wanted. Absolutely. I mean, this is a lot of this is new to me. So if I don't have anything to say, it's because I'm still trying to process all of this. This is it's sad that these are real discussions that we have to have. And this can really affect millions, dare I say, billions of people around the world. But I mean, to to kind of wrap things up, this is exactly why, like on my website, I have a tab specifically just for people to go to parlor. It's because I have to go ahead and have my actions align with my beliefs. And the only way to do this is going to come through the free cooperation of people. It's not going to come through, you know, rage baiting boycotts online. It's not, it's definitely not going to come through any type of federal legislation. The only way we can make the difference in the world we want to see is to do the things that you and your team at Parler are doing, providing people with another option. Yes, and, 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 and that's, the, that's the choice. We, as consumers, need to decide what we want to do. You don't have to give up Facebook. You don't have to give up Twitter if you really don't want to. But if you don't like what they're doing, you can pick up and leave. Either way, you can still go to places that still respect free speech if you want to have those conversations. But you, as a consumer, get to decide. We don't want the government making decisions for private companies. We can't nationalize these tech companies. It's horrible. That's a horrible concept. But what we can do is say, hey we really don't like this. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to actually go somewhere else. So for those who believe in free discussion, free speech, debate, and telling me that anything that I said in this podcast was wrong, you can go to Parler and debate with us there. Uh, that's, that's the whole goal, right? Us as consumers, we get to dictate what these companies do because these companies only care about their bottom line. If they care about their bottom line, they don't want to lose you as a customer. So if you all start leaving, they're going to have to do something about it. You need, we need to take leverage back away from these companies as consumers and say, no, you don't have power over us. We can leave and you'll go bankrupt. <laughs> That's what they're scared of. So, Absolutely. John, I've got to let you go. If people want to go ahead and find the Parler app, how can they do so? Uh, the app store, P-A-R-L-E-R with an E, not an O. It's a red app, uh, P-A-R-L-E-R. Or you can go to the website, parler.com. P-A-R-L-E-R.com. 
Perfect. John, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to pick your brain and jump on all these tangents with you. I, you know, we, we've had a lot of discussions, public and private, about what you're doing. And I've always been on the side of if it's good, people will come. So I'm happy to, you know, have my account on there. People can just find me at Remso. If you see Remso 2 pop up, call that person a loser. But until then, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Hopefully it wasn't too ranty for you. <laughs> oh, it was awesome. <laughs> All right. See ya. Take care. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.